New Year. Today, we'll be looking at the beginnings of some of the English and British royal dynasties. A good way to begin our year together. Hello and Happy New Year to my wonderful listeners. As we start off our 2023 together, I thought it might be fun to take a quick look at the beginnings of the English and then British royal dynasties. In the book I'm working on, and I have to say you're going to hear a bit about this book, The Tudors by Numbers. So I talk about how the Tudors fit in the whole dynastic picture. And so I'm thinking a lot about dynasties before and after the Tudors. And I thought, well, how do they all begin? You know, a new dynasty means something has changed. So let's take a quick look at these dynasties. I'm starting with William the Conqueror and the Normans. I know we could go back pre-Norman, but I wanted to look at England as a permanently unified country and sort of start there. So we know that William the Conqueror came over in 1066. He defeated Harold and he took over England and um, expanded and had a very dramatic coronation at Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day in 1066. Didn't go very well. There was a lot of suspicion going on. It resulted in a lot of burnings and it didn't, it wasn't really off to a great start as far as making a good relationship with his new people. In fact, William set about creating all kinds of fortresses around the country probably the most famous of which he starts the Tower of London with that white tower. It was intended to be intimidating. It was intended to be a stronghold. And the fact that we can still visit it today is wonderful and amazing and just know the history that is associated with that. Now, as strong as William himself was and as successfully as he established himself in his rule, the Norman dynasty did not last that long. After he died, there was some confusion. A couple of his sons took the throne. And of course, after Henry I. So William ruled from 1066 to 1087. And then we had William II to, from 1087 to 1100. And then Henry I. Henry I took the throne in 1100. And he ruled for 35 years. And he had many, many, many illegitimate children, but only two legitimate heirs. And after the white ship disaster, he had only one legitimate heir, and that was Matilda. So when Henry I died in 1135, the the next rule was disputed, and Stephen of Blois took the throne and was crowned in 1135 and ruled till 1154. But that rule was disputed by Matilda, who had a very significant victory in 1141, was able to capture Stephen and got herself into London, but she could not convince the nobles and the council to have her crowned in Westminster Abbey. Famously, they felt like she was not quite ladylike enough. Well, she was trying to, you know, take the throne from her cousin. That's not exactly a ladylike thing to do, I guess. But in any case, eventually a treaty or an agreement was formed 
that Stephen would finish his rule until his death, and that Matilda's son, Henry, would take the throne after Stephen. Stephen had a son, but I guess his son was okay with it. He didn't dispute it. So when Stephen died in 1154, we have the reign of Henry II, and this begins, you can either consider this the Anjou slash Plantagenet beginning, um, or just the Plantagenet beginning, or just the Anjou, Henry II was the son of Geoffrey of Anjou and Matilda. And so Henry II took the throne, and we have a new dynasty. He was not continuing the Normans. So he, as the son of Geoffrey of Anjou, took the throne, and Henry had a fascinating life. Um, his mother was Matilda, a very strong fierce, ambitious woman. And then he himself married Eleanor of Aquitaine, also a fascinating and fabulous woman. And we know that after Henry's death, a couple of his sons took the throne. He had many sons and there were a lot of problems, but Richard I, the famous Richard the Lionheart, took the throne in 1189, ruled for 1189, ruled for 10 years till 1199, when King John, who's often called the worst monarch in history, took the throne and ruled until 1216. And then we have another shift with the chaos of King John and and things that weren't, you know, it just didn't go all that well. So the Plantagenet line begins when Henry III takes the throne in 1216. So the Anjou is now dropped, and this is considered the Plantagenet line. Of course, some people consider the Plantagenets to have begun with Henry II, and that's certainly understandable as well. But now with Henry III, we absolutely have the Plantagenet line. And this is um, a successful line that holds the throne for a long time. You know, this idea, this medieval idea of you have a king and he raises his eldest son and prepares him to be king. And when that works, it sort of moves forward in a fairly predictable way. So after Henry Third, we have Edward the First in twelve seventy two, and then Edward the Second in thirteen oh seven, and then Edward the Third, who was one of the great and famous English kings, and I'll just share a little spoiler alert. We have Gemma Holman coming on soon to talk about the women in Edward III's reign. And it is a fabulous story. You will really want to hear that. So come back for that. It's coming soon. So Edward III reigns for 50 years, and he has those five surviving sons, and it's really the seed of the Wars of the Roses, because his eldest son, also named Edward, precedes him in death, and it is his grandson, Richard, who becomes Richard II in 1377, and Richard II takes the throne as a child. So he has uncles who are ambitious men with their own agendas, and actually it seems to go well for a while, and Richard himself at the Peasants' Revolt really seems to have developed a sense of kingship and monarchy, and maybe he's on his way but he runs afoul of Parliament. And one of the things that we sometimes, I would say, even often see with the kings who take the throne as children is they have a tendency to develop a collection of favorites that they want to keep around them 
And these favorites are often not well received by the nobility, by other nobles who aren't favorites, or by Parliament. This was certainly the case with Richard II. And as his reign went on, he did run afoul of Parliament. Parliament exerted its authority. Richard agreed to it for a while. It seemed to be going well, but he was biding his time and turned on those lords of Pelland and reigned as a tyrant. And it was during that time that he banished Henry Bolingbroke. He, Henry Bolingbroke was not found guilty of treason, but he was banished, the son of John of Gaunt. And then when John of Gaunt died, Richard II illegally seized his lands and refused to grant them to his son, Henry Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke returns and they have a standoff of sorts. It's not exactly a battle, but I'm not sure how willingly Richard II gives up his throne, but he is deposed. And now we have the House of Lancaster. So in 1399, Henry Bolingbroke takes the throne as Henry IV. And he has to his credit, not only is he is, is he an adult and is he a powerful noble, but he also has sons. So it looks like the dynasty will be secure, which it is for a while. In any case, Henry IV is not accepted by everyone. He has taken the throne from Richard II, an anointed king. And so there are rebellions and there are troubles and there are troubles with Wales and there are troubles with um rebellions throughout England. And it is not an easy rule, but he does hold the throne. And in 1413, he dies and is succeeded by his adult son, who becomes Henry V. And this is probably the bright, shining moment of the Lancastrians. Unfortunate, I mean, fortunately, I mean, Henry V sort of ticks all the boxes, just like Edward III had done, um, takes the throne, defeats the French, that Agincourt thing, um, and has a son. Unfortunately, he dies young, and Henry VI takes the throne as an infant, again, surrounded by these powerful and ambitious uncles and other nobles. It doesn't go well. Eventually, we have the Wars of the Roses, and we change dynasties again, because the House of York begins when Edward IV fights in battle and takes the throne that way in 1461. So Edward IV, of course, is the son of Richard, Duke of York, who started the Yorkist claim to the throne. And Edward IV rules from 1461 to 1470. There are ongoing battles. The Lancastrians take the throne back in 1470 for about a year, 1471. York comes back into power. So we've had this House of Lancaster, House of York, House of Lancaster, and then York takes it back in 1471, rules until 1483. When he dies, it's assumed his son will become Edward V. He is a young man. We know that Uncle Richard, Duke of Gloucester, steps in, and Richard becomes Richard III, in fact, the final Yorkist king, because now we have a new dynasty coming. Henry Tudor returns from 14 years of exile, and in 1485, Henry Tudor takes the throne and begins the Tudor dynasty. 
So we've noticed that sometimes these dynasties begin with a battle, with someone taking the throne, and that was certainly the case with the Yorks. They begin um, taking the throne from the Lancasters. The Lancasters take them back. The York takes it back. Lots of battles. Then the Tudors take it again. Battles. Now the Tudors we talk about a lot. We have Henry the Seventh, then Henry the Eighth, then Edward. We have a disputed and very short reign of either Lady Jane Grey or Queen Jane, depending on how you view her. Mary the First, Elizabeth the First, and the shift from the Tudors to the Stuarts actually happens quite smoothly in 1603. So James is the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, and in 1603, James VI of Scotland comes down and becomes James I of England. He comes with sons, the idea of women on the throne. There have been two women on the throne, and that's been very upsetting to a lot of people. Ah, finally, we're finished with that. But it turns out the Stuarts aren't quite as popular as everybody might have thought. And in fact, Charles I, and we, I think, sometimes forget the significance of this, is executed by order of parliament. An anointed and crowned king is executed by his people. Now, the interregnum which lasts from his execution. He's executed in 1469 and the monarchy is completely abolished. Oliver Cromwell takes over until 1660. I think I might've said 1449. 1649 is when Charles is executed. In 1660, his son is invited to come back. This is still the Stuart dynasty. And so we have Charles II. Then we have James II. That doesn't turn out very well either. The Protestants in Parliament, the Puritan Protestants in Parliament, a core of them, do not accept the birth of the son of James II, because of course, James has married a Catholic. This child will be a Catholic. These Puritans do not want the country to return to Catholicism. So after about a year of what are we going to do? William of Orange and his wife, Mary, who is the daughter of James II and is a Protestant, they are invited back and rule together. So the union is created during the reign of Mary's sister, Anne, who is the final steward. So what happens then? We have no more stewards. Well, the Hanoverians, who are distant relatives are invited over from Hanover to take the throne. There are a number of much closer relatives to Queen Anne who does not have any surviving children. She had a lot of children and sadly they all died. So when she dies, she does not have her own child as heir. There are relatives, all those Jacobites, But Parliament is determined, again, not to have Catholicism and not to lose the power they have gained. So they invite the Hanoverians. And so we have George I, the initial Hanoverian, in 1714. This unusual, very Germanic, in fact, George I preferred Hanover to England, didn't spend a lot of time there, never learned to speak English. And so Parliament, imagine how well this is working for them. They gain more and more power. George II, a little more interest. Actually, George III, 
although not very popular with Americans, turns out as far as British people are concerned to be by far the best of the Georges, very committed to England, a devoted family man, unfortunately later in his life and reign, has a series of illnesses. His son takes over as Prince Regent. Then that son becomes George IV, William IV. And then in 1837, the final Hanoverian ruler is Queen Victoria. So that dynasty ends with the reign of this queen. Well, why is it that Queen Victoria, who is succeeded by her son, shouldn't that be the same family? Shouldn't that be the same dynasty? Interestingly, when Victoria's son Edward takes the throne in 1901, he does so in the name of his father. So that begins the house of the dynasty of Saxe Coburg Gotha, which although it was a succession of a child, changes the dynasty. We do have a new dynasty. When this son takes the throne after his mother's reign, but he takes it in the name of his father. Now, the house of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha during the First World War became the House of Windsor. So the dynasty we have now, the Windsor dynasty, is originally the House of saxe coburg Gotha, but during the war, because as you can imagine, during World War One, with all of the anti-German sentiment in Britain as they are being bombed by the Germans and at war with Germany, the fact that the royal family appears to be German is problematic. And so in the reign of George V, it officially changed to the House of Windsor. Then we have Edward VIII, briefly, then George VI, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And at her death in September of 2022, our current king, His Majesty Charles III, took the throne, and he will be crowned, as we know, in May of 2023. So as we look back at the beginnings of this, of all these dynasties, we see that some began with war, some began with family confusion, some began with just a change of a family name. But the consistency, there is a relationship that threads through. There are things that are consistent, like the coronation ceremony. Some of the pomp and circumstance has threaded through. Even as the monarchy has continued to lose official or ruling power, and now in a constitutional monarchy, much of what the monarch does is symbolic and is not um, as political as it has been. We do see with all of these dynasties, the families and the individuals, kings and queens, left their own marks. These dynasties were different. And I do think it's interesting to look at how they begin and also how they end when the next dynasty begins. So as we start our year, thank you for joining me to take a look at the start of the royal dynasties of England 
and Britain from 1066 right up to the present day. Thank you. And again, Happy New Year. Thank you so much for listening to our look at the beginnings of English and British royal dynasties. Hope your year is off to a great start, and I'm so happy we're in 2023 shaking up history together.